Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. Okay, so I'm going to try and do my best to make this sound like it's not some sort of paid advertisement, because it's not, but what I'm going to talk to you about, well, it's a product, and so it's going to be difficult to get away from sounding like, hey, go buy this thing, except, you know, maybe you genuinely do want to go buy this thing. It's called an Imagi Charm, and what it does in ways that I don't fully understand is appeal to young girls such that they want to learn to code and they do learn to code. Imagine a Raspberry Pi or Arduino, but as a fashion accessory. Or maybe a Tamagotchi that you don't have to feed, but you can teach it tricks. It's kind of somewhere in that territory. Now, someone who does fully understand the appeal, because it was her idea, is Imagilab's CEO, Dora Palfi. Dora brought a bunch of these Imagi charms to an MTF Sparks event a couple of years back, and it was a real hit. So I talked to her just before Christmas, at a time where Imagi Labs were all over the blogs and newspapers, magazines and social media, because well, here's a gift idea for preteens and young teens that's fun, educational, and mixes creativity and programming skills. So why not? Dora Palfi, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. You've been getting a lot of press coverage recently, I noticed. Tell me about what's going on with Imagilabs. Well, it's been an exciting period. This is our first holiday season and we worked hard to make sure that we can reach many young women and kids in general with our Imagicharm, which is a programmable accessory. So we work to, you know, be featured on gift guides and to make sure that we can really reach as many kids as possible with the joy of coding this Christmas. So tell me about the Imagicharm because you say it's an accessory. What exactly is it? Right. So that's a really tough one for a podcast because I can't show it. So I would suggest anyone who listens to this to check out the Imagicharm online to see what it looks like. But essentially, we call it a smart accessory. It's a, a small gadget that you can hang on your backpack or your keychain, and it is customizable through coding. Uh, some refer to it a sort of as a code your own Tamagotchi, but essentially it is your coding companion that you can bring to life through programming in the Imagilabs app. And who's it for? So our main target group is, I would say, 11 to 15-year-olds, but we also have younger and older users. And the basic premise behind the Magic Charm and our whole work at Imagilabs has been to make it more fun and relatable for girls in particular to learn coding. So whenever we test the Magic Charm and the new features of the Imagilabs app, we want to make sure that it's going to be fun and inviting for girls. Right. So this is something that they can carry around with them. They can uh, write their own programs for it and it will make shapes and patterns and animations noises. Well, <laughs> the Magic Charm itself doesn't make noises right now, but your phone can make noises. So we actually do encourage creating your favorite designs that would blink together with the rhythm of your favorite songs, for example. And the music can perhaps come from, from the phone or any other device. Okay. So why? What's it for? Mm. Well, let's start with sort of the big picture of why Imagilabs even started and how we got to the Imagic Charm. So Imagilabs was founded by three women who themselves have a tech background. And what we realized is that we really believe that tech is the future and it is such a powerful tool 
to create solutions. And right now, women are severely underrepresented in tech. So that means that we also don't have an equal chance to, to shape this future. And so that is what we essentially wanted to change. What we have also found out through our own research and through secondary research is that a lot of girls are just as interested in tech as boys are until the age of 11. But in the early teen years, this interest starts to decrease. And it's not just the interest, but rather the confidence and the sense of belonging. And that is exactly what we wanted to change. We wanted to make sure that girls feel like tech is for them and that they have fun learning coding skills. Okay. And presumably there is sort of a creative aspect to wanting to uh, get into code. Is it people who don't see themselves as technology people, uh, kids particularly? Is it kids who don't see themselves as technology kids, but see themselves as creative kids that would want to play with something like this? Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. I mean, definitely our, our language and communication is inviting to the kids who would already be interested in tech as well. But right, what you're perhaps referring to is, is that actually yes, creativity is, is one big pillar and aspect of our solution. And let me just sort of trace back to also the origins of the magic charm and, and the actual solution that we've built. So it started out as a user-centered design research project. This was during my master's degree at KTH in Stockholm. And so what I essentially did was working together with, with girls, with the end users, and trying to identify sort of design features for an imaginary product that they would want to use to learn coding. And so sort of the things that we observed and found out was how much our target end users, so girls in, in their early teen years, enjoyed self-expression and creativity, how much they enjoyed being social and doing things together with their friends, and also that their phones are the number one device that they use. And so that's how we decided to essentially bring coding to the phone, so lower the barrier, lower the friction to, to starting to code, but also to make sure that it is a creative process and that essentially we introduce coding just as a tool to create things, to make things, to, to achieve whatever you'd like to achieve. Right. And when you say coding, you're speaking about a specific computer language? Well, so right now, yes, Imagilabs teaches Python with our current solution, but uh, in the future, we are looking to expand the offering. And so it really goes sort of beyond that. I mean, it is about coding in a particular language. Uh, I think that is important that we teach a real language that is directly transferable to later coding in the computer, but it is also about learning that, you know, you get error messages when you run your code and that you can write comments and you should write comments so that others can understand how your code works. It's not just necessarily about the particular language and the syntax, but about a lot more around development and computational thinking as well. Okay, so the outcome of this ideally is that there's a generation of people who know how to write computer software. Right. I think that is a big part of it, but also that there is a generation of, of people who have the confidence that they can write computer software. Because I think what happens is that when a lot of us get to college or, or get to our first internship, we might feel like we don't belong. And so having had that experience that, yes, I am a coder, I can create, and also having had the experience that Coding is difficult and it's challenging, but it is also fun and rewarding. It will allow this generation to sort of stick with it and to, to think of, as I mentioned, coding as just this tool that you can essentially apply to the problems and to the fields that you would like to deep, like, uh, dive deep in. Right. So it kind of makes me wonder, what sort of kid were you? <laughs> Curious. <laughs> but I would say that's interesting because I think I, I was certainly creative. I used to love arts and crafts. But I did also like science and math. And 
I must admit, I had this particular experience that I really enjoyed science. I really enjoyed uh, mathematics, all the STEM fields in general. But because I was a girl, I was encouraged to perhaps gravitate towards biology or becoming a doctor. And, and I was never suggested to think about engineering or computer science as a viable path for me. Right. There's a kind of an educational underpinning in this, which is kind of more than just we want kids to be able to learn how to code. You've kind of gone deep into the educational methodologies of how people learn and and structuring the lessons around getting people to go from zero to up and running with uh, Imagi Charm. What's the kind of the educational basis for this? Yes, that is correct. I mean, some of it has really just come from our research and, you know, of course, experiences, seeing how kids learn. But as you've also mentioned, we, we've done quite a bit of research into the actual pedagogy and, and, and the methods. And so what we use uh, essentially called constructionism and constructivism, essentially we encourage girls and boys using our product to create, uh, construct the knowledge along the way and really learn by doing. And so we believe that, you know, learning happens when when you're engaged and and you're probably most engaged when you're at the edge of sort of having fun and being rewarded but also being challenged and so we really try to recreate that or create that experience and so a lot of the learning that happens in our sort of universe or as we call through the Imagine Labs coding concept, I think tries to cater to the fact that that some of us learn in more sort of creative ways, as, as we explained. And I love this analogy with like human natural languages. So just like if one was to learn English, uh, some of us might want to, you know, watch TV and listen to music and, and really be more creative. And some of us would want to understand the grammar and the rules more. And so we want to recreate this flexibility as well, that you can get creative, you can play with the colors, but you can also get deeper into understanding the actual logic behind the code. I can imagine if you start out with the premise of you want people to learn how to write computer programs, that you would create a software startup, but you created a hardware startup. Is there a huge difference in that? Are the challenges similar? How does it work? Oh my God, yes. I mean, talk to any investor and they'll be like, but why hardware? (laughs) But I mean, this was essentially the outcome of our initial research. And we saw that this sort of tangible aspect of it was so rewarding. Seeing something that you programmed on your phone light up on an actual physical other device is just so rewarding. And and we've just observed this over and over and over again. And so we see that actually the hardware component adds adds a huge value. And probably especially for Gen Z, you know, who like has been growing up with their screens, with their phones, with apps, it's it maybe even is more meaningful to have sort of like an additional physical touch point in this whole experience. But of course, we are also conscious of, of you know, the, the cost associated with the hardware and that, first of all, it might not be affordable for all and also just might add additional complexity. So actually, our software itself is usable without the hardware. It's possible to, to use our sort of simulator to preview the code. And we do have uh, classrooms and users who use our, our solution that way. So you can use only the software if you want to. Yes, it is possible. It is not as much fun, but <laughs> but it's definitely possible. And perhaps in the future, we will be able to expand on it. But I think the hardware has given to us is sort of this limitation. Like I really believe that creativity can happen when you have sort of the right set of limitations and framework. Like it's much easier to get really creative when you, you know, you have some constraints. Whereas if 
anything is possible. It's, it's much harder. So I think that's sort of what the hardware has given to us. It's so actionable, you know, like here's this little gadget and you just have to start creating on this eight by eight pixel grid. Whereas if it was purely a software, it would almost be overwhelming. Like, you know, you could be creating such complex things, but with our like matrix of, of eight by eight LED matrix, where it's quite limited in, in the amount of different art that you can create, these constraints actually sort of make it easier, I think, to, to get started. It's less overwhelming. And I think that has also been really helpful when for our users and for our students to get started. You mentioned um, investors a little while ago. I know you started with a Kickstarter campaign. What's the sort of the trajectory been like from a business perspective? Have you sort of built on that and simply just uh, funded through sales or have you now got this sort of big bank of um, massive investors behind you? So, I mean, it's been a mix from the start. Well, in fact, we actually started our company, like legally founded a company when we had our first customers, you know, who wanted to pay us. So from day one, we were, you know, we had revenues and and that was part of it. But as you said, we also had a Kickstarter campaign and already then we did have some angel investors. So we've been lucky to bring in both financial support, but also expertise to our angel investors. And so until today, it's been mostly individuals and, and for example, KTH University, where we started has supported us financially. Staying an incubator in in Stockholm has been uh, part of our journey. So we've had, you know, it's been a mix of of revenue and and individuals supporting our journey. And uh, presumably, I mean, because your your Kickstarter was maybe two years ago, is that right? Actually, no, it's only been a year and a few months, a year and a half. Okay, a year and a half. Have you had any graduates from the Charm who've gone on to programming at, at what I guess you'd call a higher level? Have you got any of those stories? Yeah, well, I guess because our users are are somewhat younger, not quite yet, but I do have two examples now that I'm thinking of. One that I would love to mention is, so, you know, Music Tech Fest was essentially our first big appearance. And this was with our 3D printed prototypes back in 2018. So one of the girls who attended that particular workshop, our first workshop, she has been an Imagi girl since then. So that's essentially, that means that she's one of our ambassadors and she kept continuing to learn to code. And now she has been participating as a mentor in some of our initiatives. She has recorded her own tutorials. And so she continues to learn to code. And one of our other Imagi girls, who is uh, probably one of the oldest ones, she's 17 now, she did a summer internship with us actually, and continued coding and is now applying to university to, to study computer science. So, you know, some of the examples are starting to appear, but the majority of our users are still somewhat too young for that. That's an amazing uh, outcome to have that sort of uh, trajectory already, because I remember at MTF in Stockholm in, what was it, September 2018? Exactly. Yeah, that was a real eye-opener because you did have this uh, you know, big group of girls who are all working on these, um, what look, I mean, they look like toys. And I guess that's deliberate, but there's a really kind of serious educational outcome that comes from that. Do you sort of see this as, as a toy or do you see it as an educational device? How do you kind of think about it? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned this. Actually, I think one of our favorite quotes, sort of like an Imagilabs quote, is is from Steve Blang that disruption on the first day always looks like a toy. In fact, this is uh, written on our PCBs. And so, yes, true, the Imagine Charm itself is a toy, but 
imagine us as a company, of course, the stands for something bigger. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with toys, right? They have such a big impact on our learning and, and how we grew up. So certainly it sort of like starts as a toy and it's an easy step in, but then it, it becomes something something bigger. And, and of course, as I mentioned, I really believe in this sort of like edge of learning and fun and it has to happen together. So sort of all the gamification that comes into play, there's no reason why we shouldn't use all that knowledge that we have about how people have fun and to actually help them learn. And so that's where we sort of try to be, you know, use all that knowledge that we have about toys and, and entertainment and actually apply them to acquiring skills. Do you see what you're doing as kind of a political thing? Is, it, is there a political dimension to what you're doing? Hmm, interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. I've never thought it that way. I mean, there's definitely, we sort of call this as a movement, right? So there's definitely that aspect to it. And we definitely take stand on what values we, we stand for. So certainly there is, that is extremely important for us. And, and that's the essentially the basis of what we do, right? At the end of the day, we are building this company because we believe that we need more diversity and equality among the creators of technology. Is that easier in Sweden than it might be in other places, do you think? Yeah, that's also an interesting question. So I've been thinking a lot about this recently and have had a couple of conversations because as much as Sweden is, you know, one of the most gender equal countries, when it comes to tech and the startup scene, well, first of all, in terms of investments going to startups, VC funding, I think it was something like less than 2% of VC funding went to all female funded tech companies. And when you look at the uh, percentage of the ICT employees, actually women are less than 20% in Sweden as well, which is pretty much the EU average. So it's interesting that sort of this problem is just as big here as in other parts of Europe and, and maybe even bigger than in certain parts. So maybe people are more open to the idea of it, but it is still a huge issue. <laughs> Is it any easier to have a startup in general, uh, you know, all women-led or otherwise, uh, somewhere like Sweden? Yeah, that's also a great question. I do think that Stockholm or Sweden is is a great place to start a company. I mean, in fact, I, I never really meant to start a company, so to say that wasn't my my goal. But so it happened that I was studying in Stockholm. I was really passionate about this problem. I had a solution that emerged from one of my coursework. And at the time, I also was taking a few entrepreneurship classes. I got involved with the startup scene. I attended a couple of events and I just heard all these inspiring stories and pitches and, and you know, people just going for it. And there was also so much sort of support both in terms of like financial support, like applying for a grant to do your first prototype, that it suddenly didn't seem like a, an impossible thing to do. It was just sort of a, a natural and fun challenge to get started building your own thing. And so I definitely think Stockholm is a great place for that. And there's also definitely a lot of sort of knowledge in the ecosystem. There's a lot of people who have built companies themselves and are willing to pay it forward and, and share their, their learnings. I was going to ask about mm -hmm. that because there are some really big startups or that started as startups and now sort of massive unicorn companies. Is there that kind of nurturing of, you know, sort of passing down the knowledge from sort of bigger uh, success stories in the sort of the tech arena within Stockholm? Yes, 100%. So that's definitely been part of, of I, I believe, what has made us achieve so much in so little time that really, really busy people are willing to give you their time and knowledge when you show that you are working on something hard, that you're passionate about, that you're doing something meaningful and that you have a specific ask and a specific question and you know why you're asking them. And so, yeah, the ecosystem has been so open to sort of just support uh, new initiatives. 
I know there's a lot of awareness of these sorts of uh, technology projects. There's a lot of talk about innovation within Sweden, but that comes, I guess, with people being cautious and people being sort of very aware of things like the privacy implications of things like that. And I know particularly with things like smart devices and smart toys, particularly, there is a concern about things like surveillance and privacy and those sorts of things. Do you come across that? Do you, do you run up against it? Mm, so actually, that hasn't really been a big sort of question or, or issue for us when it comes to the Imagic Charm itself, because the Imagic Charm doesn't really have those capabilities. It doesn't do anything on its own. It literally just connects to your phone through Bluetooth, so it doesn't add that extra complexity. So the privacy concerns that we do face are just essentially regarding our, our app, and that is obviously important. And so with our small company and, and limited resources, we definitely still dedicated a lot of time and energy to making sure that our privacy policies in, in place, that we have uh, the right system set up for reporting in our app to even have profanity check in the coding environment and, you know, to ensure that this is a safe and, and supportive environment for children. I know you said you started this by thinking about a problem that you identified and that you thought that needed to be addressed. Presumably there's an end game of this where there is no longer a problem anymore. Have you given any thought to what that might look like? Yeah, so that's a, actually a great point. I mean, uh, we will not need to exist any longer when half of the tech workforce will be will be women. Until then, I guess we have to be around. But I mean, it also goes beyond that because, of course, it will continue being sort of a an important factor to have diversity in the industry. And so to sort of give you like a, a full circle vision of ours, <laughs> we say that one day we would love to set up our own fund and start investing in in the girls, uh, the women who first learned to code with our platform and with our product. So essentially, that's where this should all be going, right? Having more diversity among the creators of technologies, having more diversity among the founders and everyone using tech. And of course, it is, as we discussed, it's not just a, a local problem in Sweden, but it is also a global problem. So if you think of it more from like a UN SDGs perspective, it's it's about uh, not just gender equality, but it's about quality education and, and essentially reducing inequalities. So this should be the case, you know, globally. And that's actually also something that we are excited about with our solution being mobile first. But actually mobile devices are becoming more and more prevalent globally. They are way more accessible than computers. And so this should be something that is possible in the future for anyone, anywhere in the world to essentially learn to code directly on their phone. You talked a little bit about being an all-women-led technology company. Tell me about the team. Who's involved and what are sort of the complementarities between you? So in terms of our founding team, right, that's correct. Um, we were three female founders and we actually all met during our undergraduate degree at NYU in Abu Dhabi. So we come from like a rather international background. We all have worked in tech, but in very different aspects. So, so Beatrice, one of my co-founders is the electrical engineer and also has a master's degree in machine learning. Paula has been a software developer, interned at Google when she was 18. So, you know, she was the ultimate lead developer for us. And I've been more focused on sort of the UX aspect of the product and now have taken on the business side. But of course, it's not just the three of us. And we've been lucky to to have sort of part-time teammates and also interns throughout the process, even before we were able to, to hire our first employee. You know, we've gotten so much support. But right now we have two more full-time employees, as well as a couple interns and a couple part-timers. So our team is about 11 people right now. Wow. So presumably you now have some lessons, not just for people learning to code, but learning to start up their own companies. <laughs> 
Definitely. Well, we touched upon, I think, the most important aspect of it. What I always point out is start with a problem, right? The solution can change so much. And to get through all the difficulties and the hardships of starting a company, it really has to be something that is meaningful for you. And, and so I think starting with a problem is, is one aspect. Then I, what I always say also is find the people that you want to work with for a long while on this particular problem. So the team is extremely important because again, there will be days that are tougher than others. And, and you know, we can sort of, as you also said, complement each other and, and uplift each other when it gets uh, tougher. So I think these two are extremely important. And I think something that has also been part of our, our journey from the beginning is just getting out of the building, testing, testing with your potential customers and users and not being too ashamed, rather just being humble about what you're building and, you know, just taking all the feedback, taking all the input, not getting discouraged, but, you know, facing the reality as, as soon as possible. I think that's extremely important as well. The problem is the starting point, but the solution might change. Was the charm always going to be the solution? <laughs> uh, no, actually, we started from this idea of having a programmable phone case, which uh, girls were extremely excited about, that they could sort of customize the look of their phone. But obviously, it was a bit more complicated to create a phone case because there's so many different types of phones. And it also has to be really thin and nice and, and you know, well-designed. And actually, so for the listeners who are not from Sweden, in Sweden, there's this concept called Frau when... 14-year-olds get to intern for a week at a company. And we were lucky enough to have three pro interns with us for a week. And, and I showed them the prototypes of the phone case, which is also 3D printed. And they were like, okay, this is just not going to look good. Like the idea is great, but it's going to be ugly. <laughs> and, then, and then we brainstormed with them. And, and that's when we sort of created the magic charm. And is the charm always going to be the answer? And that's exactly what I was also going to mention, right? It's just sort of the first step in the journey. That's how we look at it. And the answer really rather lies in, in the community, in, in the content. And, and I mean, I just uh, know that we will have to continue sort of innovating and listening to our users and stay on top of trends and just keep creating solutions to uh, make uh, tech and sort of future skills more accessible and inviting to, to the ones who are currently underrepresented in the industry. Are there any other problems in this domain that you would like to see solved, but don't necessarily have the bandwidth to address with your own company? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, yeah, there, I, I mean, there's certainly a lot of problems in the, in the industry, and I'm not even sure like what comes under this domain, but I think part of it, like, for example, I, I also feel quite passionate about financial literacy and, and freedom, and when it comes to the gender aspect of it as well. It's kind of similar to the tech, you know, the whole finance industry is also extremely male dominated. And then of course, I am very conscious and aware of the other sustainability aspects of all the solutions that we're building and, and you know, of like the environmental um, aspects of, of our solutions. And of course, for example, things like, oh, can we even have plastic in our product, right? Like, is that sustainable? These are all sort of the hard trade-offs that you have to make when you're, kind of laser focus on one particular problem that you can't necessarily be 100% perfect on every aspect of the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So, you know, there is a lot of different fields that I personally have an interest in, but I think also part of like being a startup founder is that you sort of have to say no to so many things and just stay focused. Uh, and, and that's really, really tough. And now you're running these sort of educational pop-ups. How did that come about? 
You mean educational sort of workshops and events? Yeah, yeah, just turning up in, in places and essentially running labs, I guess. So, I mean, I guess like it was part of our product development process, right? So the way how the Imagine Charm was born, the way how our curriculum was born is that every step of it was sort of tested in real world. And it's sort of funny to think about it that, you know, we were asked to do a workshop and, and we were paid to do it, but that also forced us to have to develop more content. And so sort of we kind of like consulted our way through building these new parts of our solution. And so I think that is really great for us because we get real world feedback. And here, I think actually the fact that people are paying you to do something that turns into your product is really important because if people are paying for a service, you have to deliver good value for them. And you also get to test in, in real life if this is adding value to them, right? If you just do things for free, people are not paying for it. They are maybe also not giving you an honest feedback whether this is good or not. So essentially, I think that has been sort of our part of our philosophy to yeah, get out of the building, as I mentioned, and, and see if this is creating real value for people. And how can we sort of turn what we're building. So these labs, I mean, we love doing them. I personally love to teach. I've always been teaching. That was like my first job, even as a teenager, tutoring. I love that. But then the next step to it was how to make this more scalable, right? I can't show up in every classroom in the world. So how can we turn our concept into something that's more scalable? And so we love doing that and continue doing these labs, but also always thinking about how to scale it up, how to empower others to, to use our concept to teach. And by scale it up, do you mean uh, educational curriculum, actually putting it into schools? Potentially. We're actually running a, a pilot program here or we're participating in a sort of a test bed for tech startups in Sweden. So it's been started it's being tested in, in schools and I myself had a chance to, to sit in one of the classrooms, which was really exciting, uh, as well as in a few international schools in Europe. So so we're starting uh, to test that out. Fantastic. And how's that looking? I mean, it's been it's been really exciting, really great feedback so far. And as, as I mentioned, I managed to sit in, in multiple classes, actually, and get the feedback directly from the students. And I love getting feedback from students because they're just much more honest than adults <laughs> and direct about what was good and what wasn't. So, yeah, there's definitely a room for improvement always. But there's also been it's just been delivering a lot of value to students uh, learning to code. Right. Presumably it's not for everybody. It's like, it's not going to sell everybody on the idea of programming being for them. Correct. And it shouldn't be, right? And I think that's also circling back to the idea of having to stay focused as a founder. Like you also have to know if you're pleasing everybody, you're not pleasing anybody. Like you can't make a difference by trying to make everybody happy, right? And so instead of sort of like going for the breath, we really want to go for the depth of it. And that's where especially our sort of consumer focus comes in. So schools are a great opportunity to sort of reach a lot of students. But exactly what you mentioned now is really important. That's why we're keeping sort of this B2C focus, because we think we can achieve a depth of difference for the ones who are, who are open to it, right? And it's not like everyone has to become a programmer, but we want to make sure that the girls who initially had an interest for it or have a spark of interest, they have a space to sort of deepen that interest and connect with others who have this yeah, similar sort of goal. Right, because there's a tension there, I think, because you, you talk about this in terms of literacy and, and it's a word that you've used to describe this. And, and literacy, when it comes to reading and writing, isn't something that is for some people and not for other people. Everybody should read and write. Is that going to be the same for programming, do you think? I think there is a sort of level to it that should be for everybody. 
I think everybody should have what we call sort of computer literacy, right? Like technology literacy to be able to use technical tools and perhaps to not think of coding as a black box. So I do think that like a, a minimal level of exposure will be important for everyone. But then it's like the same extent, right? Like everybody can write and read, but not everybody write novels and poems. So, you know, it's a, there's just like a different depth to it. Interesting. So what are the upper limits as far as the literature of Imagicharm is concerned? What can people, what are the poems and the novels that people can create <laughs> on that? Yeah, there have been some really, really exciting uh, projects that sort of went beyond our, our initial ideas. So one of my favorite projects was this DICE project. So one of the users used the, the random module in Python to turn their Imagicharm into a DICE. So every time you run the code, it, it throws a different number. So you can use it for playing board games. We had one of our super users turn their Imagicharm into a tool that would randomly tell them or select whether they should watch Netflix or do their homework. <laughs> Presumably weighted quite heavily in one direction too. <laughs> Potentially. Uh, if she figures out how to do that, that's also a great achievement. And so there have been a, a couple like really fun applications and it can get quite complicated when it comes to to the logics and the logic and the, the mathematics to it. But I think like what's important is again that sort of this creative coding in Python is sort of just the first experience that we want to create and make it accessible. And we'll be looking to to launch new sort of courses and concepts to to potentially teach a different programming language. Or the next thing that we're looking at perhaps is a sort of game development. So so creating more interaction and more collaboration among our creators, among our users. Right. Is there a community that's formed up around this online? I mean, I imagine, I mean, I'm old, so I think of Facebook groups, but there must be some sort of uh, place where people are coming together talking about their projects. Yeah, so oh, a great question. And, and uh, right, the, the age aspect of it is interesting. Of course, as the founder, as a marketer, uh, I'm trying to understand where are our users hanging out? Where can we create communities for them? And so there is a community aspect to the app itself as well. So our users can have profiles and they do have descriptions in their profiles. And uh, it's possible to share the coding projects within the Imagine Ops app and comment on them. But we also have a Discord server. I don't know if you know about discord but it is uh, i guess a more natural place for for gen z to to hang out and and so that's where most of the discussions are happening right now oh fantastic well i'm really looking forward to you coming and bringing magic charm and your educational methodology to uh, mtf sparks when we have that next year in the summertime it'll be fantastic to have that i'm really looking forward to seeing that same really really looking forward to it fantastic dora it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast i really wish you luck with it It sounds like it's going really really well and i can see why it looks like something that i want to use to learn how to do programming <laughs> so if that's any indication whatsoever but uh, thank you so much for your time really appreciate it thank you for taking the time to talk to me yes that's Imagilab's CEO, Dora Palfi, and that's the MTF podcast. You can find the Imagicharm at imagilabs.com, and this has not been a paid commercial, and other educational smart devices are, I imagine, available. You can find MTF Labs at mtflabs.com and at MTF Labs on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. I'm Dubber, that's at Dubber on Twitter, and this week's episode was edited by Sergio Castillo. The intro music was by Indonesian electronic music composer Lux Inspira. This music in the background now is by Airtone. And the MTF Audio logo, as always, was created by Run Dreamer. You're going to hear that again in just a second. 
Stay safe, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thank you.